So this morning, I'd like to take a few moments to tell you about a young man named Alex. Uh, Alex lives an extremely simple life. In fact, he's pretty much lived out of his van for the past 15 years. A uh, bit of a loner, but loves to travel. Uh, if you saw him on the street, you wouldn't think much of him. He's a little over average height. Uh, he's actually a little bit goofy looking, I think. He's got some big ears and a little bit of a glazed over eyes to match that. And uh, like I said, if you saw him, you wouldn't think much of him. But uh, Alex is capable of something quite incredible that very few people in the world have done or continue to do. And I want to show you what Alex does this morning uh, rather than just tell you. So we're going to show a brief clip in a moment. But I just want you to take a moment to, to prepare yourself a little bit. Uh, I know my wife told me last night this this video gave her serious anxiety for about two minutes. So there's that. And then just in our culture, I think we've lost the ability a little bit uh, to just be still and watch something that is truly worth uh, some awe and just some stepping back and being amazed. So as we watch this clip, I just encourage you, it might feel long because it's a little bit slow, but it's really only two minutes. And just to take some awe in watching this. You know, I was joking with uh, Paul Frankenberg in the courtyard that those of us who climb, that's what we pretend like we do on the weekend, but we do it on a rope. <laughs> See, Alex Honnold 
is his full name, and he is perhaps the best rock climber the world has ever known. Alex has climbed some of the tallest uh, faces of mountains on the earth with nothing but climbing shoes, a chalk bag, and the clothes on his back. No harness, no rope, no safety measure. If he falls or slips or makes one mistake, it's done. And he's been doing that for 15 years. Now, Alex is certainly not a professing Christian, I have to admit to you. But I couldn't help, as I was thinking of an analogy for today's today's passage, what a great metaphor his climbing is for our passage today. That something or someone could do something with such astonishing reverence and respect and take it with such an intense seriousness, but also do it as his greatest joy. I mean, despite what some of you might think, he's not insane. You saw the guy when he was standing on the edge of the video and then when he's standing on that ledge, and you think, oh man, that's just like my worst nightmare. That's what Pastor Rick was telling me in the courtyard after first service. But to him, that's his greatest joy. You saw his face. He's smiling there. That's not someone in paralyzing fear, but someone experiencing the height of the best joy they know. And as I said, Alex knows the risks. He knows if he does one thing wrong, that it's over. And therefore, he takes it very seriously. The mental and physical training he goes through constantly is intense. He has every single movement he does on every single route memorized, calculated, and precise. He knows exactly how to move, when to move, and when he needs to move. Yet even with those risks, Alex is filled with amazing joy at what he does. So in the same way, as an appropriate metaphor, I think Christians grow closer and closer to our incredible God, just like Alex does intimately get to know those mountains. God is like a mountain. He is both beautiful and terrifying at the same time. Because God is holy and perfect, the Bible warns us that God is not to be trifled with. He's not to be approached lightly. That any sin or anything contrary to his own character brought into his presence will instantly be just obliterated, disintegrated at being so close to God. Therefore, we can't take lightly God or, or his commands. But you know, that's the same God as Christians we claim to know and have an intimate relationship with. That's our father, our dad, is that God who can be terrifying. And just as Alex or a climber knows every crevice, every overhang, every hole, as they intimately seek to know that mountain, so we do the same for God to know his character. And to know God as our personal Father. We want to know our Father. So I want you to know if there's one main point to this passage today, if there's a reason I gave you such anxiety watching that video, it is this. This is the message that Paul has for us. Let your sanctification be fueled by both a great reverence for God and also an unwavering joy rooted in the gospel of God. Let your sanctification be fueled by both a great reverence for God and an unwavering joy rooted in the gospel of God. 
This means as Christians, we strive more and more to become like our Savior, Jesus. We must do so with incredible awe of God and tremendous hope and contentment in the satisfaction his promises bring. You know, awe of God is exactly how Paul begins our passage today. If you take a look at verse 12 in our text, it begins with a very important word if you're in the ESV. It says, therefore. And I don't know if you've ever spent much time thinking about it, but therefore is a very important word, whether in real life or in the Bible. It designates something important is about to be said, because therefore is a transitional word. It's a word that takes us from the author saying, I've made some arguments or gave you some information, and here is my point, or here is a further argument based on information I have already given you. And so Paul tells the Philippians in verse 12 that he wants them to obey not only when he is with them, but also when he is absent. And we find in the context of of this verse, verse what Paul means by therefore, if we just go a few verses earlier. So picking up in verse 9, the scripture reads, therefore, meaning, that therefore, meaning because Jesus humbled himself as God, As an obedient slave to God, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord, whether we believe it or not, to glory of God the Father. You see why Paul wants the Philippians to obey even when he's gone? It's because Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord whether Paul is there to display that authority or not. He rules everything. Everything is his. He controls all their circumstances. He owns everything. All of creation is a tool in Jesus' hands, and he is Lord. And he is God. He shares all the same attributes as God. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And most relevant to our passage today, he is present everywhere spiritually. So the challenge for the Philippians was, were they going to obey even when their spiritual leaders were around? Were they going to obey Paul's commands when no one was watching them? Were they going to have integrity when no one was looking because God was, saw them and Jesus was Lord? And we have to ask ourselves the same question today. Are we ready to obey even when no one else is watching? And you have to know, Christian or not, if you're sitting here, you can't hide from God. God knows your very thoughts and exactly what you feel right now. He knows the intentions of your heart. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom they must give an account. So Paul is challenging the Philippians, challenging them to obey the commands given upon the basis that Christ is their Lord, that Christ is Lord. So Paul commands the Philippians they should work out their salvation. And then he gives a specific example And we'll see it's tailored just for the Philippians of what that looks like. Something that they need to work on 
as they work out their salvation. And after that, the Apostle Paul explains the means. How are they supposed to accomplish that? How do they do, actually do that? How do they follow that example Paul set before them? And lastly, Paul describes the attitude Christians should have when working out their salvation. So the outline we'll follow today follows that. Work, example, means, and attitude. And so we're going to flush those out today. So first we'll begin with the collaborative work of man and God. Now upon first glance at verse 13, for me, and probably for you, it appears to be a very confusing statement. If you spent any amount of time in a Protestant church like this one, it just seems to blatantly fly in the face of everything we've ever taught or ever heard. Like, is Paul saying what I think he's saying? Is he saying that it does require good works? That God needs my good deeds in order to gain his favor? That Jesus' sacrifice was not sufficient and I need to somehow add to that? And you know, there's all sorts of other questions that pop into mind mind too for that verse. Like, who's doing the work? Me or God? If God's doing the work, what can I do that he already can't do? And if I'm doing the work, what does God exactly expect of me? And what can I expect of him? So in order to answer those types of questions, it boils down to us defining what Paul means by salvation. See, when we hear the word salvation as Christians, and if you spend a lot of time in church, we tend to automatically think of what the Bible also refers to as justification. Justification is the idea or the doctrine That when we come to believe and trust in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, God permanently and sufficiently forgives all of our sins while simultaneously applying Jesus' perfect life lived for us. God sees us as perfect, not because we are, but because Jesus was perfect for us. And justification teaches that although we deserved damnation, and deserved death for our sins, Jesus, as our substitute and as our representative, bore the punishment on the cross that we deserved. And because of our punishment, we are no longer an object of God's wrath, that God has punished our wrongdoing in Christ. But instead, we are now not even just friends with God, but very children of God. And we are in a loving relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. However, in its context here, I don't think justification is what Paul has in mind. You see, salvation in the New Testament, especially used by Paul, can have three different tenses and really refer to three different doctrines. And while sometimes salvation can and does refer to justification, It can also refer to another doctrine called glorification. Glorification teaches that because of the work on the cross and how Jesus, how how God has applied what Jesus has done to us, that we will actually be exalted in glory with Jesus. You see, Glorification reaches its climax when we're exalted one day when Jesus returns to earth. 
He'll return someday to judge all people. And for Christians, they will be exalted with Christ. And they will be given a new body, a new body untainted by sin or evil, that they can live forever and ever on a restored new earth, enjoying their Savior and one another. Lastly, though, salvation can be a reference to what the Bible also calls sanctification. Unlike glorification and justification, sanctification is an ongoing process. It's something that God is doing, if you are a Christian, in you right now, during this lifetime. And then although in God's eyes you are right with him because of justification, you are right with God because of what Jesus has done for you, we know that there's remaining sin that lives inside of us. That even though we belong to Jesus and want to obey Jesus, just like Paul says, you know, in his mind, he wants to obey the law of God, but his, just, his flesh won't let him. The sin that remains in him is raging war inside of him. And what God does in sanctification is he sends the Holy Spirit with power inside of us to combat that remaining sin that remains inside of us. And so a good summary, if you're looking for one, for all three of these doctrines can be found in Romans. In just two verses, Paul expresses all of these to the Romans. He says, For those for whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Sanctification. God is making us like Jesus. That's what God is doing in all of your life, in all of history, is making people like Jesus. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. That's justification. We're right with God. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's glorification. And so that's a summary of all three doctrines. So it becomes apparent by process of elimination in the context which of these Paul means by salvation. You see, in Paul's other epistles, he explains that justification and glorification, and just as I just described, are completely dependent on God. God and God alone does that. God alone justifies us, and God alone glorifies us because of what Jesus has done for us. But we do have a role to play in our sanctification. See, this is a process that Paul is asking the Philippians to follow right now. Currently, in the present tense, he's telling them, Work out your salvation now with fear and trembling. It's not a looking forward to glorification either, a culminating event that will happen in the future. It's present tense. And so Paul is talking about in our context today, sanctification. And as I've said a couple of times now, a simple definition of sanctification is being made more like Jesus. See, in sanctification, God has work for us to do. Just as a farmer might prepare the soil or plant seeds, he ensures his plants are in the right climate for growth, so the Christian, enabled by the Holy Spirit, is responsible to prepare his or her heart to be changed and used by God now that they have been justified. 
Christians must prepare to be used by God by being diligent and disciplined in knowing his word. By allowing good and bad circumstances to shape their love of God. By spreading the gospel as Jesus commanded them in the Great Commission and through prayer. We pursue those sanctifying principles and God does the rest. He does the watering and the growing. He enlightens your soul to truth from his word. He sovereignly orchestrates every single circumstance in your life. He makes hearts that you share the gospel with receptive and receive that heart. It's not your responsibility to change that person, but just to share the gospel with them. And he also answers prayer. Definitely not in the way we always want him to, but he answers our prayers. So the question is, how are you doing preparing the soil of your life in your soul? Are you consistent in studying God's word? Are you faithful to God when not only things are good, but even when things are bad, are terribly wrong? And are you obeying Jesus' command to share the gospel, teaching others all that he has done and commanded? Are you persistent in your reliance upon God in prayer? That's what it looks like for our part in working out our salvation. And to do so with fear and trembling, as Paul describes it, means cultivating a mindset of great reverence, of respect, of allegiance, and devotion to God and his gospel and his will for our lives. There's nothing worthy, more worthy of our time, effort, and energy than to, dis- to sustain a clear, reverent mindset of those three things. Of God's character, of God's gospel, and of God's will. We ought to devote the best of our schedule, the best of our physical and mental attention, and the best of our abilities to being sanctified, to becoming more like Jesus. That is God's will for us. Paul even tells us in Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your sanctification. It's not some hidden mystery. That's what God is doing in you always, in every circumstance, trying to make you and shape you to be more like his son. And you might ask, okay, but what does that actually look like? Okay, let's get some practical examples. That looks like reading God's word with the best of your mental strength rather than the last ounces of energy you have before you lay your head on that pillow at night. That looks like spending more time working out your mind, filling it with God's word and godly ambitions than you spend at a gym, working on a body that will be replaced and is fading away. That looks like not compromising your daily time in prayer, even when you have important things to do, maybe ministry work to do. That looks like speaking and listening to God in prayer as much as you listen to others' advice in your life. That looks like being committed and persistent in attending on Sunday morning services and in your community groups and in your ministries, even if it costs you some time or some money or some inconvenience, especially to a professional or academic career. It looks like serving others, not because you have the time, but because you make the time. You make it a priority. 
See, that looks, sanctification looks like making God the singular most important person in your life to which all time slots, abilities, and relationships are subservient. They come after that. They submit to that fact that God is the most important thing in your life. That's how we can become pursue. That's how we can pursue becoming more like Jesus, to be sanctified. However, in our passage today, I believe Paul has a specific idea of where the Philippians need to become more like Jesus because of the example he gives them and because of the context of Philippians as a whole letter. You see, Paul commands the, Corinthi- or the Philippians rather, that they ought to do all things without grumbling or complaining. And if you do this, he says, you will shine as a light in a dark world, just like Jesus did. If you want to be a light for Jesus, if you want to be a light in your workplace, out in the world, be someone who does, works out their salvation with fear and trembling, and does all things without grumbling and complaining. You will shine just by doing those things. And you know, there's a very general sense in which this is just true and plain, where he says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. All things. All things without grumbling or complaining. And you know, we live in a culture that is constantly plagued by complaining. And unfortunately, a lot of times, it doesn't stop outside the church door. Complaining is perhaps one of the most acceptable sins amongst Christians. And it is a sin. Paul is giving a command here in God's word, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Therefore, to grumble and to complain is a sin. It's to disobey God's command. You see, it's, it's almost funny in a way. We complain about all sorts of things, things that are ironically on the same side but twisted. For example, we complain that work is too hard, but we also complain that work isn't challenging enough. We complain work consumes too much of our time, but we also complain we don't get enough hours. We complain no one takes an interest in us, but then we complain people are just way too nosy. We complain our favorite show got canceled, but we complain there's just way too many shows for us to find and watch them all. We complain that our, ho- our big house is a pain to clean, and then we tell people we need a bigger house. We complain our kids aren't ambitious enough, and then we complain our kids won't leave us alone and just have way too much energy. We complain about the new interim youth pastor, that he's not enough like the old guy, or he's too much like the old guy. And while it is true, we should do all things without grumbling and complaining, for that's a a life marked by unawareness and ingratitude to God, because of the context of Philippians, I believe Paul has two particular areas in mind concerning grumbling and complaining for the Philippians and for us today. Those areas are when facing legitimate need, when suffering, or when needing something from God, and also when issues that are non-essential to ministry come up in the church, when your preferences in the church don't go your way. And the reason I believe Paul has these both in mind today is because um, 
The reason I believe Paul has both of these in mind is because they're both present in an Old Testament passage Paul actually quotes here. When Paul refers to a twisted and crooked generation in verse 15, he is quoting from a chapter in Deuteronomy known as the Song of Moses. Well, you may not be familiar with that, but it's the last chapter in Deuteronomy, and what it is, is it's a poetic monologue from the leader of Israel, Moses, as leadership transitions from Moses to the new leader, Joshua. And he refers to the Israelites as a twisted, a crooked and twisted generation. See, while they were in the wilderness, the Israelites had some legitimate needs, food, water. They didn't have an army. Legitimate needs, but ungrateful and faithless hearts. And they were complaining that God was not meeting those needs. And they even accused Moses, their leader, that the reason he really brought them out of Egypt into the desert was to kill them. And that going back to slavery in Egypt was better than to die in the desert they were now in. And you know, that same type of grumbling was happening in the Philippian church, likely. According to Acts 16.12, Philippi was a leading city in a district called Macedonia. And in 2 Corinthians 8.1-3, Paul tells us something very interesting about churches in Macedonia, where Philippi would have been, where these Philippians were. In Paul's own words, he describes the Philippians as living in an extreme poverty. I mean, when an apostle who considers themselves nothing and lives on almost nothing, traveling the world, preaching the gospel, tells you that people live in extreme poverty, you know they were living a hard life. And do you think with a church filled with extremely poor members that there was complaining at times? You bet there was. And in the same way, don't we complain in reality whether we have a lot or a little? As Christians, we must know no matter how much wealth we have or lack, God promises that he will supply everything that is truly in need to us, physical and spiritual. It may not look like what you anticipated or what you wanted, but he will provide for you. And that's exactly how Paul actually concludes his letter to the Philippians. In chapter 4, verse 19, he says this, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in in the glory in Christ Jesus. God will supply every need that is truly a need. Not the wants we think are needs, but those that are truly needs. Food, water, shelter, relationships, work, spiritual nourishment. So then let's be a people in a church that rely on God for our needs and rather than relying on our own effort and strength. Let us be a people who live consciously aware that God has graciously and abundantly provided for every need that is truly in need through the promises of Christ in the gospel. And poverty wasn't the only problem in the Philippian church. We learn later in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, that two women, likely some sort of leaders in the church, for Paul calls them partners in the gospel, Paul writes this, 
Now I appeal to Iota and Syndicate, please, you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they have worked hard with me in telling the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. You see, what these two women were fighting about, we cannot know for sure. Paul never quite tells us. But what we can deduce is it must have not been an issue of doctrine, an issue of what was true. For in Paul's other letters, he always would simply say, this is the true right view. This is uh, the correct doctrine, and this is wrong. We'll condemn this one. But he doesn't do that in this case. What he does is he urges these two women to get along. You see, these two women must have had some sort of preference in regards to ministry or the church that they were holding out against one another. And I wonder if it was things that people have disagreements as far as preference in the church today about what worship style we should play, who should lead this small group, who should lead a particular ministry, whether that was the best uses of church finances for a particular situation. A disagreement of some sort on how a situation was handled or could have been handled. You see, Paul urges these women, rather than to complain and grumble, perhaps against leadership or against one another or to other people in the church, instead they should agree. Because perhaps their complaining and their grumbling was even hindering the gospel for people around them. So how about us? In this church, are you guilty about issues that are a matter of preference and personal opinion rather than of truth or of doctrine? I know certainly I am. I'm not free of that guilt. And we need to come to the realization we may be hindering the effectiveness in the gospel and the lives of others through our grumbling and complaining. And I'm not sure that gratitude always characterizes my heart or our hearts, but it should. And we need not dwell on it too long. Complaining is a sin that Christ has died for us also, and we just need to recognize it for what it is, a sin. And confess it to God and ask for the power to turn and repent from that sin. Now at this point, we spend a lot of time talking about what God wants us to do. However, that begs the question, how does God want us to do it? By what methods or means does Paul intend the Philippians to live with reverence, a life marked by reverence and gratitude to God, a life without complaining or grumbling? And contrary to our natural inclination, it's not somehow we just resolve today, I'm never going to complain again. If you've been a Christian for a while, when you say the word, I'm never going to do this again, it's usually not a good sign because you're committing to something in your own strength. That's not what Paul has in mind for the Philippians. That type of thinking will fail you very quickly to trust in yourself, to somehow muster enough moral power inside of you to obey God. Rather, Paul tells the Philippians and us our motivation and the means how we pursue sanctification or becoming like Jesus is in verse 16. He tells them, tells them, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I, not, that I did not run 
in vain or labor in vain. We must hold fast to the word of life, which is the gospel. That is how we become someone who lives without grumbling or complaining. You see, when Paul says holding steadfast, he has envisioned a sailor holding on to the mast of a ship as a storm is raging. He is not letting go for anything. His very life depends on it. In the same way, Christians have to cling to the gospel with an unwavering commitment. And how does that help us live a life of reverence and gratitude? The answer is because if we understand the gospel and all of its implications, then we grasp that in God's great wisdom and love and power, he has already met our greatest need. And we re- when we realize and live knowing that God has met our greatest need, we need not be stressed how things will turn out or that God won't provide for us because he's already met our greatest need. You see, we convince ourselves a lot of things that are wants are needs. We twist our wants to be needs. In a culture like ours, we idolize homes larger than necessary to shelter our family, expensive meals that take us beyond nourishment into gluttony, wardrobes for exceeding far above what one person needs. I mean, come on. We live in Southern California. There's only two seasons, summer and spring. How big do our wardrobes have to be? And the list doesn't stop there. We convince ourselves we need this car or that phone, this computer, that vacation. But the truth is our needs are none of those things. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to our Creator, to be right with God. That is our greatest need. Despite the delusion of most of humanity that does not belong to Christ, we are not on a moral standing or good standing with our Creator. We have wronged God. We have disobeyed God, willingly breaking His law and rebelling against Him. And we're actively, if not in Christ, under the wrath of God. God justly administers punishment towards sin. After all, if he's going to remain a perfect judge, executing justice for all, should he not punish wrong, even when we are the wrongdoers? He created us, and our very existence is dependent on him. Everything is. We have an infinite obligation to love God and obey God, but we fail to do that. And no amount of good things we do can make up for that. You see, trying to gain God's favor by doing good things rather than trusting in Christ is similar to an adulterous spouse being caught in the act but telling their spouse they did some meaningless good task like washing the dishes. That would be ludicrous, right? To be caught cheating and say, but I washed the dishes. I did something good, honey. That's what it's like to bring your good works before God instead of trusting in Christ's good works. You see, as Christians, when we understand that our greatest need has already been met, to be right with God, to be in a relationship with God, we can live here and now with gratitude and peace. We are no longer at war with God. We need not worry about the worst thing that can happen to us, death, what so many people fear because we shall be satisfied in the presence of our Father because of what God has done for us. 
We need not ever question whether God really loves us, even in legitimate suffering and hard circumstances, because the cross proves otherwise. God sent his son to die for us. We need not be idolaters because the greatest gift of a relationship with the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, is given to us in the gospel. There's nothing that surpasses the value of that. And we need not complain, for we are beneficiaries in the most valuable estate in all of existence, an inheritance alongside the Son of God. God owns everything. It's all his, and we inherit it with Jesus, the Son of God. He is our older brother, and God is our Father. So if we want to live a life marked by reverence for God and free of complaining, we must preach understand and live the gospel unto ourselves. We must speak truth to our minds, and we just, we must remember that sin is serious. It costs God his only son. But God, in the person of Jesus, was also joyed to give himself for our sin and has loved us through his son. And because of the cross, I am adopted without the possibility of ever being evicted into the family of God. Praise God for that. And lastly, Paul hopes for us and for the the Philippians to live out the gospel as he did, with a joyful attitude, a joyful attitude regarding working out our salvation. See, Paul concludes our passage today with these verses in 17 and 18. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You see, what Paul was saying is simply this, Philippians. If this costs me my life, God and the gospel, I am glad to give it up for the gospel's sake because it's worth it all. You see, Christians and even non-Christians confuse a lot what joy really is when we read that in the Bible. Joy is not happiness. The opposite of joy is not sadness. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. You see, joy is to have an unmoving contentment we experience because of the conviction of hope we have in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus. We truly believe it, and it will not be taken from us. And so Paul is joyed. He has great confidence and great hope because of the gospel that no matter what happens to him, even death, it was worth it all to expend himself for the sake of the Philippians, that others would know God. So ending here, the question is, how about you? Do you truly understand and believe what Jesus has done for you? Have you come to know Jesus and experience him on a personal level? Is God your father and you his child? I want to know if that doesn't describe you, that that is available to you. Here and now, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. 
All you need to do is repent to turn from your sins and to believe and trust in what Christ has done for you on that cross. What God has done for you. Confess to him that you have wronged him. You have rebelled against him. You have broken his commandments. And then you need to trust God that he did really send his son 2,000 years ago into human history to take the punishment that you deserved for those sins on that cross. And I have to say, following Jesus will not be easy for you if you come to him. It is a difficult life, but it is also a joyful life. Just like reverence and joy, we must take God seriously, but the joy and contentment we experience in following Christ surpasses, far surpasses anything that this world has to offer. So then you must go into the world allowing God to transform you, to make you more and more like Jesus by the power of his word and spirit. Therefore, being transformed by the good news of Jesus, you can be adopted into Jesus' family, having God as your father. But know that even when you fail, that those sins were paid for and paid for in full at the cross. You see, for those of you who are Christians, we need to remember the gospel is for Christians too. It's not something you just get and move on for from. The gospel is for Christians too. And the gospel is always pointing us back to what happened on this cross. There's no greater example or, of where reverence and joy should meet than at the foot of the cross. To be in awe of what God has done for us upon that cross. And that it is our greatest joy, our greatest contentment, and our greatest need has been met because of what was done on that cross for us. With that, let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.